Good afternoon, everyone. The carnage of the Civil War cost more than 600,000 American lives. Recent estimates by historians place the number killed in combat or by other causes linked directly to the Civil War at around 750,000, give or take 100,000 or so. After the war, various women's groups in the United States sought to organize to promote peace. A common early activity was the meeting of groups of mothers whose sons had fought or died on opposite sides of the American Civil War. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, various individuals and groups sought to establish Mother's Day observances organized in connection with various causes such as promoting sanitation and health, temperance, or reunited families that had been divided by the Civil War. One of the women involved in such efforts was Ann Jarvis. Her daughter Anna Jarvis continued her efforts following the death of her mother Anna Jarvis organized a memorial service in honor of her mother and all mothers. The first official service was held on May 10, 1908 at a church in Grafton, West Virginia and at Wanamaker Auditorium in Philadelphia. The following year, others picked up on the idea and Mother's Day was observed more widely. Anna Jarvis subsequently campaigned to make Mother's Day a national holiday. On May 8, 1914, Congress passed a law designating the second Sunday in May as Mother's Day. Some have tried to link Mother's Day with ancient pagan worship of a mother goddess but there is no historical or cultural connection between the secular American observance of Mother's Day and such worship. Mother's Day celebrations of various origins, however, are celebrated in many countries and some of them, in fact, are linked to pagan worship. Although many have also been influenced to one degree or another by the secular American custom of Mother's Day since it was established. In the Bible, we find references to a number of remarkable women. Many of them are mentioned in connection with their children, so we know that they were mothers. In today's sermon, I want to discuss two of the famous mothers of the Bible. Let's begin with Eve, the mother of all living human beings. The first chapter of the Bible provides a summary of God's restoration of the earth after a period of destruction which had left the earth desolate and ruined. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, or as it should be translated, the earth had became or had become without form. And the Hebrew here is tohu, which means a waste, and void. 
And here the Hebrew is bohu, which means an empty ruin. So the earth had become a wasteland and an empty ruin. It's what the scripture tells us. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And so God restored the earth to a place suitable for the habitation of living organisms and created those organisms. And God finished this creative project with the creation of mankind. As we read in Genesis 1 and verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the human family, Adam and Eve, were created in the image or after the pattern of the God family because God is a family and at the head of that family are the Father and with Him is Jesus Christ who together are members of the unified Godhead. As we read in John 1, beginning with verse 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. The Word spoken of here, the one spoken of as the Word of God, is Jesus Christ. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The one spoken of here in this context is God is the Father, the one that Jesus Christ called the Father. And the two of them were God and were at the head of the God family. And there were other created beings that had been made, the angelic host, who in a sense was part of the family, but the, those two beings, from what Scripture reveals, were the only ones who were actually God. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, as we read. And they were given dominion over the earth and its creatures. And they were commanded, as we read, to be fruitful and to multiply. In other words, they were to reproduce. They were to have children. In Genesis 2, we read more details about the creation of mankind. More specifics about that particular aspect of God's creation. In verse 7 of Genesis 2 it says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The word translated man here is from the Hebrew word Adam or Adam which is from a word that means red or ruddy. So God formed Adam, out of the dust of the earth, out of the elements of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils 
the breath of life, and he became a living person. But Adam was alone at first, without a companion suitable for him, or comparable to him, or fitting for him. As we read in verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. In other words, someone on his level, someone like him. Now, God had created many other creatures, various animals and so forth, and and God set Adam to the task of naming these creatures, which he did. But in verse 20, it says, For Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And so it goes on to say in verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The pattern of marriage is established on the creation creation of Adam and Eve and the fact that they were created from one flesh and in like manner when two marry, a man and a woman marry, they are to be joined together as though they were one flesh. And there's a lot more to that that I don't won't go into in great detail right now, but Adam named the companion who had been created from his own flesh, Isha, which is the feminine form of Ish, which is a word for man. A woman is simply a female man. The man and the woman sharing the same nature, human nature, were intended to complement one another. They're not precisely the same, but they have many more similarities than differences. And the difference is one that has to do with simply the difference in the sex of the man as opposed to the woman. The man is male, the woman is female. And the man, the male, and the female woman were intended to complement one another and so to make a complete unit. And they were intended to reproduce as a unit or as a family. And that's what constitutes a family as far as Scripture is concerned. God had commanded Adam and Eve to eat of the trees of the garden that he had made for them, except for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as it's called. But what this tree really represents is the office of lawgiver with the authority to determine or designate what is good and what is evil. But Eve was tempted by God's adversary, Satan, to partake of the forbidden fruit, which means that she usurped God's office and prerogative as the one lawgiver. As we read in James 4 and verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. And what Eve decided that she would do is she would take on 
the prerogative of determining for itself what is good and what is evil without reference to God's laws or His commandments. And so we read in Genesis 3, beginning with verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing or designating, as it could be translated, designating good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So both Adam and Eve sinned by violating God's commandment. But the greater guilt was Adam's because he was the head of the family. And he, when faced with Eve's transgression, instead of resisting, simply meekly went along and followed her into sin. And Adam was held as the one primarily accountable for the rebellion against God, although Eve played her part in it as well. In Romans 5 verse 12 it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam is the one who is assigned the primary responsibility for the sin of rebellion against God that occurred there in the Garden of Eden. Eve sinned because she was deceived. As we read in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Eve was deceived into sinning. Adam sinned simply out of weakness of character, though he was not deceived. As it says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in, and the Greek here translated in is the Greek preposition dia, which really should be translated through. She will be saved through, not in childbearing, but through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control. Now this is a very important statement here and we will get to the gist of its significance as we go along here. But Eve was deceived and fell into transgression as a result of the deception but it says she will be saved through childbearing. They will be saved through childbearing. Actually it implies more than just women here, but as we will see. But Adam and Eve had 
had access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and they had the, actually God had commanded them to eat of that tree as well as the other trees of the garden, except for the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Had they eaten of that tree, the tree of life, instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the designation of good and evil, they could have been granted the gift of eternal life at that time. However, because of their sin, Adam was told that he would die. In Genesis 3 and verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Interestingly, it's immediately after this sentence of death was pronounced that we are introduced to another name for the woman God had made for Adam. And that name is Eve. Genesis 3 and verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Actually, she wasn't a mother yet, but she was going to be. This was really a prophetic statement. But here the death sentence had been pronounced, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve, the name Eve comes from a root word which means to live. The name Eve means in the original language life, or life spring, or life giver because she became the mother of all human beings who would ever live. In that sense, Eve is your mother. She is my mother. She is the mother of us all. Moreover, it is through her childbearing, ultimately, that human beings can be saved from the penalty of sin, which is death. Romans 6 and verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God said to the deceiver, Satan, after Adam and Eve had sinned, in Genesis 3 and verse 15, He said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He, the seed of the woman... Satan was told, will bruise your head or crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Now obviously, a bruise to the heel is much less serious than having your head crushed. This was a prophetic statement concerning the seed that Eve would ultimately produce through childbearing. In the curse pronounced on Satan was an implicit promise of progeny for those that he had led into sin, and of ultimate victory of humankind over God's adversary and of theirs, Satan the devil. Though Adam had fallen into sin in naming his wife Eve, he demonstrated faith in God's promise of progeny and perhaps even of ultimate victory over the adversary. Eve eventually had three sons who are named in the Bible. Cain, Abel, and Seth. Abel 
was murdered out of jealousy and rage by his brother Cain. While Cain fell into sin and lawlessness and became a murderer, Abel was a man of faith and sought righteousness. As we read in Hebrews 11 and verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. In 1 John 3 and verse 12, we read, Cain was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. After the death of Abel, Adam and Eve had another son whom they named Seth. Seth, the name Seth, means substituted. Somehow Adam and Eve understood that it would be through Seth that the promise of progeny and life would be fulfilled. It wasn't going to be through Abel because Abel had died prior to having any children. It wasn't going to be through Cain because Cain was evil and rebellious. But it would be through Seth that the promise of progeny and life would be fulfilled. All of Cain's progeny were evil. There's no one in the generations succeeding Cain that is named as righteous in the Bible. The only men of godly faith and righteousness who lived before the flood that we know of were descendants of Seth. And these included Enoch and Noah and perhaps others, but these are specifically named as righteous men who lived before the flood. Although Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters besides these ones who are specifically named, only the line of Seth on the male side survived the flood. Only those descending from Seth on the male side survived the flood. Now we don't know that much about the female side. Of course there were obviously women involved but the Bible names the male descendants from generation to generation of Cain and, and Seth and it was only the line of Seth that survived the flood. And from his line of descendants ultimately was born the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through whom mankind has the potential for eternal salvation. And it is through Jesus Christ that the prophecy was to be fulfilled, where Satan was told that the seed of the woman would crush his head while he would crush the heel of the seed, speaking here specifically of Jesus Christ, because Christ, of course, as we know, Satan inspired men to hate and despise Jesus Christ and put him to death, but he was resurrected from the dead, and he will put an end to Satan's potential to treble mankind or treble a God family when the purpose and plan of God for mankind is, is brought to complete fruition. Some supposed theologians and Bible scholars have claimed that Adam and Eve did not really exist, but are fictional characters. But the Bible does not treat them as fictional characters, it treats them as real and historical persons. They and their sons, especially Cain and Abel, are mentioned multiple times 
not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And there's no hint that they're just fictional people, but they are treated as real and historical persons. There are other lessons we can draw from the life and experiences of the mother of all living human beings. God took a piece of flesh and bone from Adam's rib near his heart, from his breast. It was not taken from his feet as though she were to be a doormat, nor was it taken from his head as though she were to be his boss. The bosom is used in the Bible as a symbol of affection, of love, and of protection. And that is the proper basis for the relationship between a woman and her husband, or a husband and his wife, is to be a relationship founded on nurturing, on affection, on love, and not competition and a struggle for dominance. The experience of the woman, as well as the man, also should be a warning of how important it is to pay attention to and promptly obey God's commands. It is a lesson in how easily we can be deceived and manipulated by Satan and his agents. In case you think Eve was some sort of exception to the rule in how easily she was deceived, let me tell you, she was not an exception. She's quite typical of humankind, both male and female. Human beings have been being deceived by Satan ever since the time of the Garden of Eden. And any of us could very easily be deceived and no doubt have been deceived at some point in our lives by Satan and his agents. Satan is a liar. Satan is a murderer. And he will take advantage of our weaknesses if we allow him to. Jesus said of Satan in John 8 verse 44, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. We're warned in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Satan is out to get anybody and everybody that he can. We must examine our thoughts and our motives. We must not just give in to whatever thoughts or impulses pop into our heads. But we need to be aware of our responsibility to God to obey His word. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's what Eve failed to do. She failed to be mindful of her obligations to the law of God. And she allowed herself to be deceived by what sounded good, by what looked good, but what was contrary to God's commandment. 
Also, from the story of Eve, we learn that man is not sufficient by himself. Adam needed a companion. As God said, it's not good for the man to dwell alone. I'll make a companion comparable to him. Adam needed a companion fitting for him, one who was like him, one who shared his nature and his potential. Nor could the continuance and extension of life to humankind be accomplished through the man alone. It required a woman, Eve, who became the mother of all living human beings. And in her place, many other women since then have become mothers in their own right. Adam required Eve, and Eve was taken from Adam. The two were one flesh, and only as one flesh could they reproduce. And only by that means could mankind continue to live. Now let's turn to Sarah the wife of Abraham and the mother of Isaac. God is frequently referred to in the Bible as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, or Israel. Abraham was chosen by God as the one through whose descendants many of God's promises, including the promise of the Messiah, would be fulfilled. Abraham was a man of faith, a man who believed God and acted on his faith. As we read in Genesis 15 and verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, he said to God, Look, you have given me no offspring, Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham had faith in God's promises. Now God had told Abram, who was later named Abraham, to leave Ur of the Chaldees, where he dwelt, and that was an area evidently uh, in Mesopotamia, uh, close to the ocean, and he had dwelt in that society, which was an idolatrous pagan society which virtually all societies in the world had become. And God had told him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and, or the Chaldeans and to go to a place which God would reveal to him later. And Abraham had obeyed in faith his wife accompanying him. In Genesis 12 verse 1 it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old. Lot was his nephew. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram and his family had moved from Ur to Haran, which is north of Canaan. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they had departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Stephen explains further in Acts chapter 7 beginning with verse 2, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Speaking to the Jews, he was in Jerusalem at the time. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abram, Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. He was childless. He was 75 years old. His wife was 10 years younger than he. But God had promised to give the land to his descendants. In Hebrews 11 and verse 8 it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, traveling over these areas, moving from one place to, to another as Abraham did, would not be an easy thing to do, or necessarily convenient. But that's what he did, and Abraham's wife, Sarah, Sarai, as she was originally called, was faithful, and she accompanied Abraham in these difficult wanderings. Although God had promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, as we've seen, Abraham was already 75 years old when he departed from Haran to go to Canaan, and he had no children, for as it says in Genesis 11 and verse 30, Sarai was barren. She was childless. Now, Abraham was a man of faith, but at times his faith was weak and it wavered. After arriving in Canaan, Abraham took Sarai to Egypt because of a severe famine in Canaan. 
We read about that in Genesis 12, beginning with verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Now here she was 65 years old, or perhaps even older, and yet evidently she was a ravishing beauty even at that age. So Abraham said to her, Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, Sarai was in fact the half-sister of Abraham, but Abraham did not have the courage and the faith to be totally honest with Pharaoh and tell him that Sarai was also his wife, which was more than just a little bit coincidental given the situation and then trust God for the outcome. A similar incident happened later in Canaan, where we read in Genesis 20 and verse 1, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now, Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife. For he is a prophet. And he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that, all, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So again, even though both Abraham and Sarah were generally faithful to God, they were weak 
and at times their faith was not as strong as it ought to have been. But despite their weaknesses, God intervened and protected both Abraham and Sarai, or Abram and Sarai, who by the time of the incident in Gerar had been renamed Sarah. But it would have been far better had they simply told the truth from the outset in complete faith that God would fulfill in them his promises because he had promised certain things would happen before they died. And had their faith been stronger, they would have told the truth, probably avoided some of these problems and been protected in the face of threats and danger as God protected them anyway. Prior to the incident in Gerar, Abraham and Sarai were getting older and still without children and Sarai conceived a plan to work it out so that Abraham could have at least one child of his own. And so we read in Genesis 16 beginning with verse 1, Now Sarai, Abraham, Abram's wife, had borne him no children and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Now this was a common custom in that culture, not that it was necessarily the right thing to do, but it was common in that culture to, for men to have children by, their, by the handmaids of their wives or wife. And so Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai, as it says. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, so he went into Hagar and she conceived. And then in verse 15 it says, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So this was Sarai's solution to the dilemma that these promises had been made to Abraham or Abram. It had not been fulfilled, even though he was quite old. But the problem was that was not God's plan. It was her plan, but it was not God's plan. It was not in God's plan to make Ishmael the one through whom the promises of the covenant would be fulfilled. God appeared to Abram again when he was 99 years old and told him that he would have a child by his wife Sarai. Genesis 17, verse 15, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? 
And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This was almost too much for Abraham to believe. So he said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So that's what God told Abraham when he was about nearly a hundred years old. A short time later, God appeared again to Abraham. As we read in Genesis 18, verse 9, Then they said to him, this speaking of God and angels that were with him, they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you, God is speaking here, and he said, I certainly will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, Shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So it was difficult for her to get used to the idea that she was going to have a child after all. But both Abraham and Sarah were now convinced that God could and would keep his word. Although by all outward indications, what he had told them would happen was impossible. As we read in Hebrews 11 and verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Sarah despite her imperfections, was a woman of faith, a woman who loved and honored her husband, a strong woman who was yet submissive to her husband, sometimes, we might suspect, too submissive. Yet Sarah's faith toward God and her faithfulness to her husband are exemplary and they are to be emulated. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, 
when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, that is, with your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now note in the scripture that we read here that faithful women are referred to as daughters of Sarah in that she is an example of faith and obedience to God and respect for her husband. At the same time, husbands are admonished to treat their wives with honor as Abraham generally treated Sarah and they're warned that if they fail to do so, their prayers will be hindered. Sarah, despite being very old, conceived a child in faith and gave birth to Isaac. And through her seed Isaac, also the seed of Abraham, was the covenant promise passed on to that and to later generations. As we read in Romans 9 and verse 6, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. In the Bible are mentioned a number of mothers. Mothers who had faith. Mothers who were examples of godly conduct. Mothers through whom God is fulfilling His promise of life and salvation. Among us are such mothers as well. 